When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Malenkov, NASA, Emperor Coffee, Rockefeller, Campanella. Don't know what that means. I don't know. It sounds like it tastes good, though. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world, the ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Casey, should we start some fires? Why not? I am getting just a little bit of heat under my tiny little ham hocks that I'm sitting on <laughs> um, because I'm thinking, okay, we're about to jump into yet another baseball discussion. Billy loves his baseball. He loves a little bit of sports ball and uh, big bulky men hitting each other. So if if he's not talking about boxers, he's talking about baseball players. And sort of slightly against my will, I am gaining a grudging respect <laughs> for these towering athletes. Today, we are talking about someone who has perhaps been a little bit overlooked, but he has such a compelling story. Today's subject is Roy Campanella. And the expert who's going to help us flesh this character out into his full 3D glory is Josh Chetwin. Josh was our guest for the Joe DiMaggio episode. He's a journalist. He's a broadcaster. He's an author. He used to play baseball professionally. And he also hosts a baseball podcast called The Johnny and Josh Show. Welcome back. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you both again. Thank you. So uh, Roy Campanella, he was a pioneer in many ways, not least because of his DNA. He was half African-American and half Italian, and that was kind of a spicy mix for a uh, professional athlete at the time. Absolutely. You know, when we look at this period and you think of integration of baseball, which was a seminal moment in American history, we often quickly move to Jackie Robinson, who, of course, broke the color barrier in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But Roy Campanella deserves a tremendous amount of credit for playing a role in that process. And because of the fact that he was half Italian, half African-American, he faced a very difficult road, particularly in his youth. He wasn't really necessarily welcomed by either community. And uh, so much so that, you know, he scrapped as a kid. He fought in golden gloves. You're talking about boxing. He was an amateur boxer because he had to. He had to sort of protect himself. And yet, despite all that, here was an individual, unlike Jackie Robinson, who 
carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. Roy Campanella was a guy who really just was positive all the time. He was an upbeat dude. He was a guy who, despite all these humongous hurdles, just sort of kept positive throughout. And, and that, in the early part of his life, really set him apart. I feel I need to rewind a little bit here, Josh. So Campy, as he's known, was a catcher. Just talk us through exactly what a catcher does. I could spend your whole show doing that. That was a position I played. So I have a, a lot of reverence for the position. I played it for the Great Britain national team for 10 years. Uh, and it's a unique position. The only player who has the perspective of the whole field is the catcher. He looks out and sees the other eight positional players. He also is the individual who calls the game. So the pitcher will determine the pitches that he's going to throw based on what the catcher tells him. So the catcher needs to have a certain acumen and with his different view of the game in terms of the defensive side. And as a result, catchers aren't necessarily expected to be the greatest hitters. They're ones that have to control the game. They have to dictate what the pitcher's doing. What made Roy Campanella special, and he was in a small group in this era, was that he was also a phenomenal offensive player. When he was given the bat and his team was on offense, he was one of the best in the game. So you had a guy who was great behind the plate at managing pitchers, at calling games, and then also could come up to bat and make a difference on that side of the ball as well. Josh, if Katie and I were sitting side by side at Ebbets Field watching that Brooklyn Dodgers team and Campy is catching behind the plate, take us inside that stadium. What would we have seen? What would we have heard? There would have been a tremendous amount of energy. I mean, baseball in the 1950s, the fandom was at a fever pitch. People loved their game. If they were going to be uh, playing you know, the New York Giants, their crosstown rivals... Uh, there would have been even more energy. Campy would have played with energy. One thing that a catcher does is you'll come out from behind the plate. You'll let all the players know how many outs there are. You'd be like, two outs, two outs, or one out. Uh, you know, he might be telling where players should be positioned. Uh, he would set up behind the plate. He would give a signal to the pitcher and then maybe move to the left or the right to try and give a location for where that pitcher should throw. And when he came to bat, he was absolutely electric. Uh, this is a guy who hit... A ton of home runs. He was short, he was squat, but he hit with tremendous power. So, you know, they always talk about the great hitters. It's not what you see, but it's what you hear. And the sound of the ball off the bat when Roy Campanella probably hit the ball was unique and different. It was a crack of a special style and a special type. What did he look like? What was his physique? What did he sound like? He was always upbeat, very positive guy. He was the stereotype of a catcher during that era. New York was the center of baseball, and we discussed this uh, way back when, when we talked about Joe DiMaggio. But in the 40s and the 50s, baseball and New York went hand in hand. There were seven newspapers that were writing about baseball all the time. And there was a certain stereotype to a catcher that the New York Yankees catcher Yogi Berra also had, but Roy Campanella really imbued. And that was sort of, and Roger Kahn used the term, he looked more like a sumo wrestler than a baseball player. Rounder than he was tall. Uh, he was about five foot nine, but weighed anywhere, depending on which source you read, between 190 and 220 pounds. He was a round guy, round cherubic face, 
always smiling, very positive individual, uh, spoke very positively. He was a real foil to Jackie Robinson in the sense that Jackie was a, heavily, a very educated individual, gone to University of California, Los Angeles, uh, UCLA, whereas Roy Campanella left school at 16. He wasn't an educated person, but very positive and very articulate as well. Can you explain to us, Josh, as well, how the color bar worked in Major League Baseball? Yeah, there, there was sort of a, an unwritten agreement between the owners that they wouldn't allow African-Americans to play in Major League Baseball. In the 1900, there were a few examples in which it occurred. And then there was a very famous baseball player in that era named Cap Anson, who really instigated this idea that there should be a separation and an African-American should not be allowed to play. Uh, it was a huge stain because, of course, baseball is America's pastime. And as it went, really, so did the country in many ways. And so, you know, it was one more addition. You know, obviously, America has this huge stain on it uh, through, through slavery, through its relationships with, uh, you know, African-Americans and the way they've treated people. Uh, and this sort of really held. But there were people in Major League Baseball who wanted to see a change. They realized just the inherent inequity of this, just it being flat out wrong. One of which was Branch Rickey, who was the general manager for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, Bill Veck was another one who was with the Cleveland Indians, but Branch Rickey really got the jump on it. And interestingly, we all know that Jackie Robinson was the person who broke the color barrier. But the story goes that, that actually Branch Rickey went to Roy Campanella first to talk to him about potentially joining the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, Campy thought that Branch Rickey was asking him to join a Negro League version of the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Black Dodgers. So he actually initially turned down Rickey, and Rickey went to, to Jackie Robinson. I'm not sure whether that would have impacted whether uh, Jackie Robinson or Roy Campanella would have been first, but it was clear that Branch Rickey had his eye on Roy Campanella as the type of person who could break the color barrier. It required a very special type of person who was going to be able to handle the epithets, going to handle just the, the rank racism that really pervaded America in so many areas. And Jackie did it in one way. He bit his tongue, even though he understood how wrong it was. And Roy Campanella did it another way, which was to stay positive, not to, to really delve deep into the pathos that was going on, and rather take it lightly. Uh, and, and they were very different in that way, Jackie and Roy, but, but they both were able to find their way. Were they just different characters and they different characters with different interests, or was there any beef at all between them? I've read a quote that Jackie Robinson is supposed to have said when he saw Roy Campanella just, as you say, ignoring racial taunts. And Jackie Robinson is supposed to have turned to someone and said, there's a little Uncle Tom in Roy which is about as big an insult as he could have thrown. Yeah, I mean, and that was a, that's a very famous quote uh, and very well known. And they both had said that they did have a respect for each other. There's no doubt that Jackie Robinson felt that Roy Campanella would just be like, hey, this is the way it is. I'm going to allow it to roll off my shoulders and go. And Jackie didn't like that. I think Roy dealt with Jackie a little better because of his personality, because of, hey, I need to stay positive. There was a tension, but I think there was also a tremendous respect on the field. As I mentioned before, Roy Campanella was the field general, right? He was the guy who was the catcher. So when he said, hey, Jackie, you need to move a little bit towards, Jackie Robinson played first base and then second base. You need to move a little bit in the direction towards second base rather than where you're at. 
Jackie Robinson would respect that. They had a plain respect. When they played the game, they respected the way each of them played. And I think that overcame whatever issues potentially Jackie had towards Roy off the field. I'm curious about the Negro and Mexican leagues that Campy played for before he joined the major leagues. Who went to go see these games? Was it necessarily only black and brown baseball fans? Because these would have presumably been excellent players at the top of their game, and they were just kind of shut out of Major League Baseball. It doesn't mean that they weren't as good a player. Yeah, I'm very interested in Major League Baseball just recently, last year, made the determination that they would describe the Negro Leagues as a major league. They've done this in the past. The historians who are involved with it have determined that not just players who played the major leagues, but certain other leagues that were of major league quality deserve to be considered in the same pantheon. And what that means is that the records that occurred in the Negro Leagues, there are a couple of other leagues uh, that also fall into this category, one called the Federal League, uh, that these players would get the same level of respect for having played in that. So these players were certainly as good as Major League players. There is no doubt about that. They did play in front of segregated audiences for the most part. Mm. It wasn't that... uh, white people couldn't go to the games, but there were primarily African-American audiences that went to it. Uh, and this speaks volumes of, of Roy Campanella as well, too. He got his start in the Negro Leagues at the age of 15. Let that sink in. This is a level that's as good as Major League Baseball. The youngest player ever to play in the Major Leagues was a guy named Joe Nuxall, who was 15, but that was during World War II, where most of the players had gone off to war and they were desperate for talent. Here was a guy, Roy Campanella, who was good enough. He would go on the weekends. He was still going to school. He would go on the weekends and and in that first year play for the Washington Elite Giants that ended up becoming the Baltimore Elite Giants, a very famous team. And he would play for that team. I mean, he was that good. And that's what's so heartbreaking about Roy Campanella's career. I know we'll talk about the end of his career, but the start of his career is that here was a guy who was probably good enough to be in the major leagues, maybe not at 15, um, but certainly by 16, 17. um, But he was held back. He didn't get to the major leagues until 26. That's a decade of performance and play that he could have had at the major league level that was taken away from him because of segregation. Was he accepted in Major League Baseball, Josh, by everyone? I've heard a story about a pitcher called Hugh Casey. So you've described to us very eloquently how a catcher will dictate the direction of the game and will be communicating constantly with his pitcher. I've heard a story that that Casey refused to take the feedback that Campy was giving him. And that's certainly true. I mean, they faced racism. You're talking about Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, who would come in the year after Campy did. Uh, these three players were part of, of that real center core of the Brooklyn Dodgers that would ultimately go on and win a World Series in 1955. And they had to deal with issues like that all the time. I think what was really fascinating about Campanella, uh, he'd won, he won three Most Valuable Player Awards, was that rather than being shunned, and we talked about his childhood where he was shunned by both the Italian community and the African-American community was sort of in that way station in between the two. When he became a star player, it was the other way around. I talked to a friend who uh, was born in 1940 who uh, was a big baseball fan during the 1950s, uh, and it was Italian. And he said, you know, with a name like Campanella, it didn't matter what the color of the skin was. People jumped to him in the Italian community. African-Americans jumped to him. So yes, he did face hurdles on the field. There were certainly players who 
didn't respect him. I think that was the minority, not the majority of players. I think that he earned the respect by his performance level, both as a defensive catcher and offensively. But I think off the field, it was amazing to see that he could become a hero for all types, despite the fact that we were still living in an era with the tremendous racism in the United States. I heard tell that the Ku Klux Klan threatened to kill Campanella and Robinson at an exhibition game in Atlanta. And, and that's not surprising. Again, there, there was a lot of, there was a malignancy. I mean, to this day, there's a discussion, there's still a malignancy in the United States as it relates to race relations. And there were going to be people, no matter how beloved he was by the masses, who were going to try and bore into that malignancy. And certainly the KKK would be at the top of that list. But I don't think it was reflective of average Americans. I, I think that what people like Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella did was that they were able to undermine stereotypes. Maybe they had certain thoughts, certain preconceived notions, but when you saw a person like Roy Campanella hit for power as a catcher, him and Yogi Berra were unique in that way. There were so many other catchers who were just defense first, but could play on both sides of the ball in such a demanding position. You had no choice. You, you were duty-bound as a sports fan to respect him and to make him a beloved figure. Ooh, Tom, if you don't mind, I need a moment. So it's just as well. It's time for a commercial break. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. Katie, here's something I've read which made me like Roy Campanella immensely. So apparently when he does his first autobiography and he has a ghostwriter and I have performed the role of ghostwriter on Uh, many occasions. Um, He says, so the usual thing is you get an advance from your publisher and it is split between the ghostwriter and the star athlete and usually the star athlete does slightly better because they are the star athlete. So when Roy Campanella got $1,000 in advance, he gave it all to his ghostwriter and said, you got to do the work, buddy. I love that about him. And, you know, that is the very definition of a team player. I mean, that is how you motivate somebody. It sounds like he's got real people skills, Josh. It sounds like he knows how to read a room. Well, what I loved about him, one of uh, sort of the famous quotes, and I'm going to paraphrase it. He said that you need to be a man to play baseball, but you have to have a boy's heart. And he was really great at, at towing that line between the responsibilities of being an adult. You know, he was a business owner. He owned a liquor store. Uh, But also realizing that when you play sports, you need to play with exuberance. And he did that. And that exuberance uh, was something that was infectious with all the players he played with. So Roy loved his success. Uh, He totally thrived on it. He ended up buying J.P. Morgan's estate out in the country. He had a fancy yacht. He had uh, what was reputed to be the biggest model train set in the entire world at the time. He had rare tropical fish, gold Cadillac. He had all the big boy toys. Um, and he was also, you know, featured in the, in the newspaper columns. He was kind of a, a flashy guy. Uh, was he somebody who uh, 
Was happy in love, lucky in love? He was married to his high school sweetheart and then left her and married another woman in 1945. The relationship, to my understanding, was pretty good uh, until uh, Roy faced the tremendous tragedy of his personal life, which was that uh, he was driving. He lived in Long Island, uh, which was outside of New York City. He owned this liquor store in Harlem. He was driving home from a liquor store in the off-season in a Chevy, a rented car, so he wasn't as familiar with the car. He had an ice patch, ran directly into a telephone pole, broke his neck, and became a quadriplegic. Here was this guy who was still at the height of his powers. He was in his mid-30s. He was reaching closer to the later part of his career, but still could perform. Uh, and all of a sudden, he was in a wheelchair, and he was going to be in the wheelchair for the rest of his life. That affected his marriage. Uh, they ended up getting divorced. He later was married a third time. But uh, it affected his life tremendously. I mean, here was a guy who really believed in the power of positive thinking, and it had worked through, for him throughout his whole career, where, it, hey, I'm just positive. I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to be exuberant. I'm going to embrace the boy within me, and it all worked out. And now, all of a sudden, he was faced with a, an insurmountable hurdle, certainly from his baseball career, and it, it really had changed him. He went into a huge funk, but that spirit inside him, that spark inside him didn't stop, and as a result, he was able to bounce back and he had a second act that was really quite remarkable. Katie, there are some heartbreaking details about what happened between Roy and his wife, Ruth, after the accident. So in 1960, he institutes a suit against Ruth, his second wife, for legal separation. And he says, she doesn't love me. I'm a helpless cripple. I serve no purpose in her life. And she intends to come and go as she pleases. And then he cites a couple of occasions. He says he was cuckolded in Atlantic City, uh, again in another man's apartment. And he says once at two in the morning outside our home, she got into a car with a man and they embraced passionately and made love with abandon. Aww. He says when he complained the next morning that the children had heard her cries, his wife, quote, raised a fork to me and says, I'll give my body to anyone I desire. You can't do anything about it. Oh, that is just so grim. I mean, he went into a dark and deep depression. But you have to give credit to him and, quite honestly, to the Dodgers. So the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles uh, and could have left Campy behind very easily. But rather than do that, they gave him a job and gave him a reason to live. He became a, a scout for the team. He became a coach. So even though he was confined to a wheelchair during spring training, he would work with the catchers. And he became an overall ambassador for the Dodgers. He would ultimately move to Los Angeles in uh, mid-late 70s. And that gave him a reason. Uh, and what also gave him a reason was to advocate for people who had physical disabilities. He became a tremendous advocate. You look, you have to understand that this was an era where accessibility was not discussed. Uh, there was eventually a landmark act, the Americans with Disability Act, that would create a lot of opportunities for people with disabilities. At this point, no one thought of them. They were people who were put into the shadows. And here was this great hero who was now confined to a wheelchair. You couldn't look away from it. And he could have chosen to have, have, have felt such sadness for himself that he would recede. He didn't do that. He stayed in the limelight. He talked about those issues. He continued to be a huge factor in baseball, not only for the Dodgers. He was involved in the Hall of Fame voting. He was a figure in that to help determine who was going to go into the Hall of Fame. Uh, he became 
a massive figure in an, a point where people like him, people who were uh, of physical disabilities, were shunned. He, he didn't allow that to happen to himself. Uh, and it speaks volumes that he could come back from the injury to have such an impact. We've talked about this famous book, The Boys of Summer, which uh, came out in the early 70s, written by Roger Kahn, who had been a Dodgers fan as a kid growing up in New York and was then a reporter for the New York Herald Tribune. And the premise of this book is that he then goes back to his heroes and to the men he used to report on when they are in middle age. And the chapter on Campion, Roy Campanella, is called Manchild at 50. And I think the most affecting single paragraph for me is the final paragraph in the chapter on Campy, when he has gone to his house and Campy is in a wheelchair and he's displaying all the attributes you talk about, Josh. So I'm just going to read this this final Paragraph in the chapter. He pushed the lever and the wheelchair started off bearing the broken body and leaving me, and perhaps his wife as well, to marvel at the vaulting human spirit, imprisoned yet free in the noble wreckage of the athlete, in the dazzling palace of the man. Wow. I just can't imagine the strength of character you have to muster, Josh, to have been that elite athlete with uh, all of those skills at your command, and then overnight not being able to move at all. I was touched by reading about this encounter that he had in the hospital after his accident with a a 10-year-old kid with no arms or legs who rolled into his room and uh, saw Roy crying. And apparently the kid said, you're feeling sorry for yourself again, aren't you? And Roy said that snapped him out of it. He said he, it did more for him than rehab because it, it really, I guess, just showed you that it really is mind over matter, whether you're going to rise to this horrible challenge or whether it's going to consume you. There was a clip that I saw on YouTube of Roy making an appearance at a World Series game at Yankee Stadium after uh, he had his accident. He was in a wheelchair. And just as you say, Josh, there was no adequate access for wheelchairs for, you know, anybody who had any sort of disability. And he had to be carried in front of this entire stadium. That must have been so hard for him to have his vulnerability exposed to the world like that. Right. But the flip side of that, it was so empowering as well, too, right, for people who had to deal with that, that a man of his stature could be willing to look that vulnerable in such a public forum, spoke to how the world needed to change in terms of the way they looked at people with disabilities. You, you mentioned the fact that everything in his life changed overnight, and, and that is something to really look at with athletes. Like, every athlete has a day of reckoning where they realize that they are not, you know, the masters of the universe anymore, that they cannot play the sport at the level that they can play at. But usually it's a crescendo or a decrescendo to to that moment where you, you sort of take it on day by day until you get to critical mass and you understand, you know what, I'm done. Now you overlay that without having that period of time, the tapering off to that moment. I, I can't even get my head around it, the difficulty to wake up one day, one day thinking, I'm getting ready for spring training, I have another season, you know, I'm gonna to continue to do what I love and what I excel at, and then being flat out told just completely, I can't do it anymore. It's uh, shocking. Coming back from it 
would require such a fortitude that so many people wouldn't be able to have. And it's such a testament to Roy Campanella that he was one of the very few to have that. And you wonder whether the experiences he had in his early life and all the difficulties and the hurdles gave him some of that power. But that combination of, you know, as, as Roger Kahn said, you know, the, the man boy, I think that those elements really did help. He did have that responsibility of a man, but he also had that childish love of humanity, you know, of just toy trains and tropical fish and just being alive, the humanity of it. And I have to believe that that helped him elevate himself from the darkness. There was something I got quite excited about, Katie, when I discovered it. And as you know, we often ask ourselves, why is Billy included a particular person, place or thing (laughs) in his song? Now, we know he loves baseball, so he's probably going to put Roy Campanella in. Then I started thinking, okay, so Billy Joel's a Mets fan. Would he have watched the Dodgers? And I realized, Josh, that Billy is growing up on the North Shore of Long Island. Roy Campanella lives on the North Shore of Long Island. And And I think they would have lived if Google Maps has not lied to me, about five miles apart. So he may even have been to his his home. What would have happened, do you think, had Roy not been in that car crash? What would we have seen of him in his career? Well, he was definitely on the tail end. I mean, you certainly would have seen more statistics. I think one of the factors that really stands out about Roy Campanella, there's no player in the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is, of course, you know, the enshrinement that every little kid baseball player, every adult baseball player hopes to reach, the Hall of Fame. He is the player in the Hall of Fame with the fewest number of plate appearances. And that speaks volumes, right, to his skill and to the performance that he put on. He was an eight-time All-Star in in only a nine-year career. He was a three-time Most Valuable Player in that short period. So, he was getting towards the end of his career. He probably would have put up some more numbers. But the truth is, is he had already chiseled himself into that you know, marble of greatness of baseball. How do baseball fans today feel about Roy Campanella? I think we've alluded to it a few times in this conversation. And I, I think it's sort of sad that you know his career wasn't long. So if you didn't watch him, if you don't know his story... And a lot of baseball fans live and die by statistics. So they'll go into, there's a website called Baseball Reference. There used to be a big book called the Baseball Encyclopedia with all the statistics. Baseball is a sport. The engine are statistics. And you look at his career, you think, wow, this, he was a good player. In his nine years, he was you know an all-star all these times. And he hit a yeah, decent amount of home runs. But his counting stats, his career stats were not at the highest level because his career was cut short on both ends, right? At, at the top, because of segregation, he didn't start his career until later than he should have. And at the end, because of his injury, it was cut short. They were bookended. And so fans today, I don't think, fully appreciate A, what he meant to the game, and B, what an absolute meteoric superstar he was for his time. So I wouldn't describe him as a forgotten player. I think any baseball fan would know who he is. But people don't think of him in the same terms as Yogi Berra, who didn't face the same hurdles. Yogi got to start his career at the start of, you know, when he should have, the great Yankees catcher. And he was able to last a lot longer because he didn't face the horrific injury that Roy Campanella did. But he deserves to be thought of in that same light. He is one of the true greats of the game. 
but not just as a player, but as a human being. And when you look at what he did after his injury, once he was in a wheelchair, you could do nothing but give the greatest baseball signal that you would give to a player, which is to tip your hat. He deserves the tip of the hat. Here's, here's one final little campy fact from me, Katie, which endears him to me even more. We talked about his first autobiography and how generous he was with his ghostwriter. His second autobiography, which comes out after the accident, seems to sum him up as a man and a character. It is simply entitled, It's Good to Be Alive. Josh Chetwin, we tip our hats to you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I think the best thing about doing this podcast, Tom, is developing a new passion for something that I thought was completely tedious. Yeah. So now now I'm turning into a little bit of a baseball head. To go with your newfound love of boxing through Buncey. Yeah, boxing through Buncey. And Josh Chetwin just puts me in the middle of the game. But, you know, you have a head start on all this because you're a sports guy and you <laughs> know and love your cricket. What do you think about baseball? Yeah, Katie, I often find myself wondering... Had I grown up in the States, would I have fallen for baseball as I fell for cricket in this country? And I think I would have done. In a very different sporting way, I went to Japan in 2019 to cover the Rugby Union World Cup. Hmm. And Japan loves its baseball. And every time I watched an American program, TV program as a kid, or a film where they had batting cages where you could go and drink beer and slug, I thought... I would love to do that. That w- sounds like a recipe for disaster, <laughs> like alcohol and big wooden bats. Oh, what a joy. So in Japan, I finally got, Katie, yeah. to live that dream on multiple <laughs> occasions to go into a batting cage with a one-sided helmet, having drunk a lot of beer and have a machine from a sort of, because it's Japan, from a sort of uh, hologram of a pitcher, hurl baseballs at me and I could swing away, clunk, miss, clunk, miss, to my heart's content. I loved it. I loved it so much that I'm just going to go quiet for a bit and think about that memory, if you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're looking for another podcast to check out, why don't you try Death of a Sports Star? It's presented by the legendary Elroy Spoonface Powell. And there are episodes about sporting giants like Kobe Bryant, Payne Stewart, Marco Pantani, Flo Jo, Jonah Lomu, and more. Just search for Death of a Sports Star. Yes, I'm biased, Katie, because I wrote some of those, but they're amazing tales to tell. So do check it out. If you want to get in contact with us, we are at Spread That Fire on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also email us if you want to be maybe a guest. Maybe you know someone who would be a fantastic guest for a lyric we are yet to come to. Email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. And join us next week when our episode will be all about the communist bloc. Big subject. Huge. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. 
From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.